Hey, 11 a.m., we're glad you're here. Uh, let me just say this, I'm really glad we're doing this, uh, especially for those of you that have been serving us for over a year, and now you get to worship. And uh, so let's just, say, let me just say, like, let's, let's press in. Like, show up, get here, sit close, hang out together, go all in, obviously have integrity with how you worship and those kind of things. I'm not trying to play the Holy Spirit here, but um, um, yeah, and if you're like, hey, I don't fall in that category, we'll loop you in too. There's grace for you too. But uh, we're really thrilled to be able to do this, especially for those of you um, that have served us for so long and still serve our kids and disciple them. So um, if you can't tell, we're diving into family of origin today. Uh, we started a series last week called Family Discipleship. And if you missed it, you have to, literally, you got homework this week. You have to go back and listen to it. Uh, Pastor Will was here. We dove into the idea that um, as parents, your role now or will be one day, your primary role will be to disciple your kids. Um, it's not to raise good citizens. It's not to raise good athletes. It's to raise disciples. It's to make disciples with the time that you have um, and beyond the time that you have with them in your home. Uh, we're not preparing them for graduation day or draft day. We're preparing our children for judgment day. Uh, we will all face the Lord one day. And uh, God has entrusted our families to us, and our role is to make disciples of our children. So we'll unpack all of that. I would encourage you to dive into that. But this morning, we are going to talk about the reality um, that when we approach discipleship of our children, uh, we do not come at it with a blank slate, right? We do not just show up uh, with no perceptions, with no past, with no baggage, with no trauma, all of those things that you were impacted by your family of origin. And for some of you, your parenting strategy up until this point might have been, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what was done to me. Some of you, it may be to keep the good, to get rid of the bad. Um, others of you, you might not know what your strategy is uh, for this parenting thing, but I can promise you, your family of origin affected you one way or the other. They not only gave you um, your height and your body type and your eye color and all those kind of things, but your family of origin um, gave you um, some memories, some good, some not so good. Uh, they gave you that funny laugh that you might have or the walk and those kind of things, like all these kind of things. Your family of origin has affected you, that none of us are a blank slate. And the goal this morning, and let me just relieve the tension, it's, it's a heavy message, all right? We're gonna get into... Uh, the memories, those kind of things. And we're not gonna leave here fixed. Um, I wish it were that easy. Uh, we're not. We are all a work in progress. And the goal is to see, um, be aware of these things, see what Christ has done uh, for them, to them, and uh, to begin this journey of being the healthiest version of ourselves for our kids. Because that's what your kids need. Other than the gospel, your kids need a healthy version of you that's aware of your upbringing, upbringings, that's aware of how you might be affected by your family of origin, uh, because none of us are blank slates. So we're going to open the door, open the conversation. Um, it's going to be pretty heavy, um, and you're going to feel a lot this morning, but you can't heal what you don't feel. And you've got to go there. Uh, we're going to try to keep it as fun and as light at the same time as possible, but I mean, we're talking about our moms and our dads, right? Uh, also, let me just say this. The goal is not to make anybody bitter towards their parents or resentful towards their parents. So if you're sitting next to your kids during this message, uh, you can rest assured uh, that that's not where we're going to land. Uh, if, if you walk out of here and you are resentful towards your mom or your dad or your family of origin, your grandparents, uh, then I've failed. All right. So the goal is a greater empathy, um, a greater compassion for your parents and their family of origin and the messages that they heard growing up and the behaviors that they brought on as they were kids. Um, parent or teenagers in the room, you need to know that your parents were eight-year-olds one day as well and that they had to do what they had to do to make life survive for them. And they had experiences, and good and bad. Um, and we all pick up these things along the way. Does that make sense? That's where we're going. Let me pray real quick and then I'll jump into uh, content this morning. Lord, uh, we're grateful uh, that you're sovereign over our families. Um, God, that there is truth to generational iniquity and sin and brokenness, but God, there is better news. Um, so Father, we are so grateful that we can be insanely honest about the bad news because the good news is that much greater. 
So help us to do that in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, you were impacted, you were shaped by your family growing up. The great prophet Miranda Lambert sings a song that says, the house that built me, right? Um, your house built you in a lot of ways. Um, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandma's in your bones, right? Um, the way you talk, the way you interact, the way you laugh, all those kind of things, uh, it's deep in us. Uh, Pete Scazzaro, he writes the, uh, the emotion, emotionally healthy leader, the emotionally, emotionally healthy spirituality, emotionally healthy discipleship. It's all kind of one book. It's three different books, but it's a lot of copy and paste between the three. Um, he writes this. He says this. What happens in one generation tends to repeat itself in the next whether it be alcoholism, addiction, depression, suicide, unstable marriages, unwed pregnancies, mistrust of authority, unresolved conflict. Scientists and sociologists have been debating for decades whether this is a result of nature, our DNA, or nurture, our environment, or both. The Bible doesn't answer this question. It only states that this is a mysterious law of God's universe. While it may seem that each person is an individual acting alone, that person is also part of a larger family system going back, as the Bible says, three to four generations. And family patterns from the past are almost inevitably played out in present relationships and behavior. And in many ways, our present is shaped by our past. And before we can move forward, a lot of times we gotta go backwards. And that's what we're doing this morning. The goal is for us to go backwards so we can be aware of things, we can see things, we can deal with things so that we can be healthy versions of ourselves moving forward for the sake of discipling our children. Is that cool? You understand where we're going? Cool, that's where we're going. Um, and here's where I wanna start because I've had the privilege and I don't say this as a pat on the back, I don't say this arrogantly, it was actually a gift by a good friend of mine, a dear friend of mine for me to begin this journey um, working through my family of origin two years ago. And uh, I've had the privilege of, of kind of beginning this work and I'm a work in progress. I am not the gold standard of having figured everything out um, and being completely aware and don't let my family of origin affect me whatsoever and all those kind of things. But um, one of the things I learned as I was going through this process is this uh, quote right here that we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. But you and I, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And what I mean by that is, for example, suppose you get a compliment. And if you grew up in a home where compliments were given freely and they were genuine, you might receive those. But if you, were given a if you are given a compliment and you grew up in a home where those were used as a manipulation tool, then your response to compliments might be, okay, what does this person want? Why are they being so nice to me? And you may not even be able to receive one of those. Does that make sense? Maybe you were a kid growing up and you broke something or you were a teenager and you got in a car wreck and one of two things happened. You either run to your parents openly because you lived in an environment of grace and expectations that people were broken or you beat yourself up and you cringed and you loathed the idea of going to your parents and admitting what you've done. Why? Because your parents didn't respond to you, they reacted to you. And those are two very different things, right? Response is thoughtful. The emotion matches the level or the, the weight of the circumstance. And it's aware and conscious of how people will take our response. Reaction is much different, right? It's knee jerk. It's emotion does not match the level of the circumstance. And it does not care whatsoever about how people will feel when we react. And it changes how you view reality. It changes how you view, view that wreck or that mess up, that mistake, that compliment, right? We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. So the goal this morning is for us to begin to figure out, okay, who are we? What have we experienced? What has shaped who we are, the way we are, and so forth? And the reality is when you think about your childhood, um, you got many great things, right? Prayerfully, your parents were a huge blessing to you. And by and large, you can look back, my family's this way, that I'm really grateful for the family that I grew up in. But my parents aren't perfect. Teenagers in the room, your parents are not perfect. And the family that they grew up in is not perfect. And there were things as a child, there were some things that you needed that you never got. 
And the flip side of that coin is there were some things that you got that you certainly didn't need. And one of the most healthy questions, one of the most healthy things you can do as a couple, you can do as a family, is to kind of recalibrate every now and then and ask those two questions, especially in your marriage. Hey, what are some things that you need from me that you're not getting? And what are some things you're getting from me that you don't really need, right? And maybe you ask that with your kids to be more aware so that we can be healthy disciple makers and healthy disciples as we go through this journey. Um, So what happens when you've got children, think back to when you were eight, right? And there were things that you needed that you didn't get. And there were things that you didn't need that you got plenty of. So what do we do? We start trying to make life work for ourselves, don't we? Especially if we don't know the gospel. We go and try to control and manufacture on the outside in our circumstances, in our behavior, in our relationships, what's missing from us on the inside, don't we? That's what we do. And we go and we try to make life work. Teenagers, your parents were eight years old one day and they had to make life work for them. And maybe you grew up in a home where you never felt safe because you saw somebody walk out and you decided from that point on, I never wanna feel this way again. So you did whatever you had to do to make sure that somebody didn't walk out. And if that means you had to sacrifice who you were, if you just told yourself, if I could just not nag, or if I could just um, look past these certain behaviors, if I could just do exactly what they want me to do and be exactly who they want me to be, they'll love me and they won't leave me. Maybe that was the message you told yourself as a kid. Maybe you let someone get really close to you friend, mentor, parent, and they hurt you. And you decided from that moment on that I will never let someone get this close to me. And you decided that you were going to let people only get so close and then push them away. And then you let them get close again and then you push them away. And what happens is you become an adult if you never identify that and deal with it and you won't let people into who you really are. Does that make sense? because we started trying to manufacture on the outside, in our relationships, in our behaviors, what we did not receive, what we do not have on the inside. Maybe you grew up in a home where someone told you the real you wasn't good enough. So you decided that you were going to be somebody that was good enough, even though that wasn't all the middle. And you developed insecurities and you just went through life. You went through middle school trying to be who all the middle schoolers said you needed to be. And then you went through high school trying to be who all the high schoolers said you needed to be. And then you went through adulthood trying to be who the world says you need to be. Just trying to win someone's approval and win their love. Maybe you grew up in a home where you had to work for your parents' approval. You tried and you tried and you tried to be good enough, to be smart enough, to be successful enough. And you tried and you tried and you tried and you put so much pressure on yourself and then you become an adult, right? And you have kids. And if we're honest in here, some of us are still trying, except now you've got kids and they reflect your behavior, right? They reflect your skills as a parent. So now you put all this pressure that you used to have on yourself on them too. And you've become the very thing that you swore you'd never be and you're putting unnecessary pressure on your children. Why? Because we didn't get something and now we're trying to manufacture it. Maybe you've given up on approval from your parents and you're just trying to get it from anywhere you can. This is true for me, um, if we wanna be fully transparent here. Maybe you grew up in a family where there was always a more important need than yours. And I don't say that as a victim, In fact, I wouldn't change it. I just never dealt with it. I have a sister with autism and the family that we grew up in, like her autism was the North Star. It was the guiding, like deciding factor for our family. And my therapist even said, this is very common with families that have special needs children, was my sister determined how we treated birthdays, what restaurants we went to, where we vacationed, all those kind of things. And hear me, I would not trade it for the world. But what happens is when you're eight years old and you convince yourself that there's always a more important need in the room than yours and you never deal with it, as you grow up and you become an adult who looks around and there's always a more important need than mine. And you don't fight for what you want, you lose your voice, you lose your desire to go after the things that you want in life because there's, you look around, there's always a more important need than the one you have. And like I said, I'm not a victim of it. I just didn't know how to deal with it. So I try to make life work, right? And we all do this. 
Maybe you grew up in a home where one of your parents wasn't getting their emotional needs met from their spouse, so they had it met in you. And what looked like you being besties with your mom or your dad in middle school and high school and college has now turned into a complete lack of appropriate boundaries. And now you're afraid to establish some boundaries with one of your parents because to them it will feel like losing a spouse all over again because they've been getting those needs met from you. See what happens when we don't identify these things, that these iniquities, as we'll see in a minute in scripture, they just keep on coming. They keep on coming. And sooner or later, we either become the complete opposite of our parents or we don't even know it, but we become the very version of our own folks, right? That they've affected us. And the goal of this morning is to see it, to be aware of it, to see how the gospel affects it and to be the healthiest version of ourselves as possible. Um, There is no life without pain. It's one of the first lessons I ever learned. There is no life without pain. Pain is a sign that you're alive. Pain is necessary. It is, it is part of this life. Since Genesis 3, right? The sins of one family has passed sin down to every family ever since. So what do we do with all this? Like I said, the goal is not to be bitter towards your parents. The flip side of that coin is true. The goal is not to be a victim. Some of these things weren't your fault, You didn't ask to be born into the family that you were born in, to have the parents that you had. It's not your fault, but let me say this. It has now become your problem. And that's a healthy way to look at it. John Stott says it is never unhealthy to look reality in the face. It was not your fault, but it is now your problem. And children, teenagers, there will be things as you grow up that were not your fault. But guess what? Because of the family that you were born into, they have now become your problem. And we need to see them. We need to be aware of them. Why? So that we can deal with them and we can be the healthiest version of ourselves for the sake of our kids and the sake of the next generation and the generations after that, our grandkids, and on and on and on and on and on. Augustine says this. um, He says, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I know myself, that I may know thee. Beautiful quote. Calvin says something similar. He says, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And we gotta know where we came from, what generational iniquities and sins and bents do we have in our family tree? Why? So we can see them, we can be aware of them, and we can deal with them in a healthy way. So let me show you in scripture, some of you may be aware of this idea of uh, generational sin. Some of you may have heard the term generational curse. You may think you're under a generational curse, all those kind of things. By the way, that phrase isn't in the Bible, generational curse. Um, But I wanna show you in scripture where these ideas come from. This is Exodus chapter 20, uh, starting in verse three. It says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here it is. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Says the same thing a few chapters later in Exodus 34. Lord passed before him. This is God revealing himself and describing himself. This is God talking about himself to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Here it is. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Last one, just so you see, this is not a random thing in scripture. Leviticus 26, verse 39. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. So what in the world is a iniquity or an iniquity, let's get the grammar right, Parker, that passes down 
from generations, from fathers and mothers to children to the third and to the fourth generation. And here's what I want you to see, and this was fascinating to me, I kind of learned this this week as we were prepping, is that there is a difference biblically between sin, between transgression and iniquity. And we use all those terms interchangeably often, and I'll tell you why, you'll see why in just a second. But there is some nuance to each of the terms. There is some slight differences. And I wanna give you a definition of each of them just so you kind of know our terms here as we talk about these things. Sin, probably the most obvious, to miss the mark, right? Sin is to miss the mark or fall short of a specific standard. Romans 3.23 is the token definition, right? For all have sinned in what? Fallen short of the glory of God. And when we sin, we fall short of God's standard. We don't make the mark. Transgression is different. It's to trespass. It's to see a line and cross over it. It's to trespass, to overstep, to cross a pre-established line or boundary. Biblical example of this is Romans 4.15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is in the middle of Paul's argument. And what he's saying here is that if there is no law, there's no running lane for you to live in, then you can't transgress because you can't step outside of the boundary. But because we have a boundary, because Romans 2, God's written the law, his law in our hearts, and we violate it without even being Jewish. We violate it with our own conscience, right? Our conscience knows what we should and shouldn't do, and we can't even obey that. But we transgress. We pass over a boundary that we were never supposed to pass. We go places we were never supposed to go. Do you see that? That's transgression. And then iniquity is different. This is in our hearts. It's to internally distort, turn, bend, or twist the heart over time towards a particular pattern of sin. This word also includes the results or the consequences of sin. The Hebrew word has to deal with the consequences of our sin. Psalms 51 talks about this. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What is David saying? He's saying, don't just cleanse my behavior, but wash me internally. Wash this iniquity, this bent in my heart to mar or to twist or to bend the standard. And then there's two other categories of sin. And you've probably heard these. We won't dwell on these. Sins of commission, right? Things that we are supposed to do, but we don't. Did I say that right? Things to do, to do what you're not supposed to do, right? Things that we're supposed to do that we don't. I said that totally wrong. Sins of commission, to do what you are not supposed to do, right? Sins of omission, to not do what you're supposed to do. Both of those. And here's the reality, and here's why we use those terms interchangeably, is because when we sin, we do all five of these things. When we sin, we not only sin, but we transgress, we commit an iniquity, we commit a sin of commission and omission, that every time we sin, we fall short of God's standard, we cross a boundary we're never meant to cross, we internally twist or mar God's standard in our hearts before we do the act, we're doing things we're, we're not supposed to do and we're not doing the things we're supposed to do, right? That every single time we sin, we do all five of these things. Our sin is so much more pervasive and is so much more wicked and is so much more evil than we could have ever thought because we do all of these things on a regular basis over and over and over again. The problem of our sin is so much greater than we could have ever thought. It is deep within us. If you think fixing it with a few behavior modifications every week is gonna cut it, it's not. We need heart surgery. We need gospel. We need a savior. And what's even worse is that our iniquities, these bends towards certain behaviors, marring these standards, they are the things that get passed down to our children, to the third and to the fourth generation. Now, let me clear the air here for a second. This does not mean, and I wanna be abundantly clear, that you are guilty for your parents' sin and that your children will be guilty for your sin, all right? That's not what it means. Don't take my word for it. Let me show you. Deuteronomy 24, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. <laughs> this is a really uplifting verse. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin, right? You're not guilty of your parents' sin. 
Your children aren't guilty of your sin, which means we can't play the victim, right? I'm not guilty for what they did. I'm guilty for the things that I do. I'm accountable for my own sin. Second Kings quotes this same verse, but he, Amaziah, did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, so you've got these people that murdered, and he says this about their children. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall die for his own sin. Ezekiel 18, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So let me be clear. Each of us are guilty for our own sin. Can't play the victim, but our iniquities get passed down. These behavioral bends get passed down. And if you look at your family tree, you can probably identify some. That my kids one day will not be at a different standing before God because of my behavior. Does that make sense? But my behavior and my sin will affect my children. And you were born into a family that had brokenness and had shortcomings and had sin. And you're not guilty for their sin, but you better believe that their behavior and their decisions and their choices and their sins affected you, didn't they? And we see this through scripture, Lamentations 5. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Right, they're gone. They died for their sin. But the result of their sin, we now have to bear. And part of that is they're gone. Now we gotta live without fathers, right? We're not guilty for their sin, but now we bear the iniquity of that, the absence of a father. It's gets, it gets passed down to us. We live within the consequences of our family's sin. This goes directly against this very American individualistic culture that we have. Because it's biblically, there's so much that gets passed down through the generations. Jeremiah 14, we acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Psalms 51, David takes it a step further and he says this in verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Is he saying the act of him being conceived was sinful? No. He's saying that he was born into the iniquity of his family. That you gotta live within your family. And the decisions they make, the baggage that they carry into the family relationship, the way that they react or respond, the things that drive them, the brokenness that they inherited from their family, we are all born into it. And if you look at your family tree, You've probably already been doing this mentally. You could probably see some iniquities, some bents towards some specific behaviors that are existent in your family tree that have gotten passed down. Let me give you an example. For my family, um, I, I, when I sin, when I'm pressed, when I'm stressed, when I fall short of the glory of God, I don't turn to alcohol. I just don't because it was not in our family. My father and mother didn't drink. Their parents didn't drink. My grandpa on my mom's side is a severe diabetic, so he had to monitor his diet and what he drank since he was young. But we're not bent that way. For your family, that may be a bent. In your family tree, that may be an iniquity that's just you've seen go down the generations. But I don't go that way. That's not an iniquity that was passed down from the third and the fourth generation, but passivity is. And I've learned that just to make life work. That's how I had to survive. That's how my parents had to survive. That was the iniquity that we, would, we were bent towards, was avoiding conflict, not engaging for the sake of health, but just to back away and to try to make life work. For some of you, it may be control. I grew up in an environment where there was lots of control. And I was so, this is where it gets so, crazy. I was so repelling of control, so afraid of control that I would control people so that they wouldn't control me. And I had become the very thing that I ran from. I was so afraid of being controlled that I started controlling people in my relationships out of fear that they might control me. And it's just, it's, it's one of those things that is bent, that I'm bent towards because of my parents and their parents and their parents. It's just one of those things that's been passed down. 
And I don't know if any of those are yours. It may be resentment. It may be pride. It may be self-pity, rage, maybe something that you can see, this iniquity that you're kind of bent towards in your family tree, neglect, excess work, right? Trying to find your identity and your significance in your work. And you've seen that just kind of go through the family tree. That's how one of your parents tried to prove that they were significant because that's how their parent tried to prove that they're significant. And now you can tell like the temptation for you is to work some extra hours and get an extra percentage point on your bonus. Why? So you, not so that you can provide more for your family, but you can feel a little better about yourself, feel a little more significant. It may be isolation, caretaking, sexual sin, food, insecurity, people-pleasing, compromising values, Depression, divorce, perfectionism, indecisiveness, substance abuse, manipulation, right? Look through your family tree. You can probably see some of these iniquities getting passed down through the generations. And this isn't just therapy 101 with Parker. This is in the Bible. We see this over and over again. You see blessings get passed down, but you also see generational iniquities get passed down. We see this, I mean, it, look no further than Genesis. Genesis 12, God makes his promise, his covenant promise with Abraham, what, that he's gonna bless him, and through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. He's gonna make him into a nation, he's gonna give him a land, and all throughout Genesis, we see the blessing through Abraham get passed, but we also see lots and lots of iniquity get passed as well. Let me show you, and I won't read all of them there's like three examples. There's many examples. We pulled out three for the sake of this message. I wanna read to you so you see it with your own eyes. The first one with Abraham and his descendants, but then you see this in David's descendants. You see this in Herod's descendants in the New Testament. We see this everywhere, but I want you to see it in Genesis. This is Genesis 20, um, starting in verse one. It says this, from there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar, and Abraham said of, his said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So what happens is Abraham is moving towards this land. There's a king there in Gerar, Gerar and it's Abimelech. And Abraham is so afraid that his wife is so attractive that they're going to kill him and take his wife. So he lies and says, she's my sister. And the king takes his wife to be his own wife, and God appears to him in a dream and all those kind of things and says, that girl's married, all that kind of stuff. And the king reacts and it's a whole situation. The very next generation, Isaac, Abraham's son, goes to the very same place with the very same king. Genesis 26. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Abraham did this twice. Isaac now does it. Isaac has two sons. So you've got lying, this bent, this iniquity that's getting passed down, giving up of your wife. You've got these things that are getting passed down. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And you want to see the iniquity of lying and manipulating pass forth to the third generation, here it is. Isaac is dying. He's got his two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older one. He was supposed to receive the blessing. And you see Jacob manipulate, lie, to take the blessing from his brother. Genesis 27, one chapter later. So he went into his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, right? Let me read that again. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. So what did he tell him? Let me give you the context. Um, Jacob's dying, not Jacob, Isaac's dying. He tells Esau, go into the field, get some food, get some game, get some drink and bring it to me and I will bless you. So um, Esau goes and then Jacob manipulates. Esau's out getting this food and Jacob sneaks in the room and he says, I'm Esau. And then um, Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. I went and got the food. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And look at the lie here. He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. 
What a lie. Then uh, Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau. Uh, So he blessed him and said, are you really my son Esau? So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and ate and he brought him wine and drank. And Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. That's the third generation. Lying, manipulating. Jacob receives the blessing and the iniquity. What happens in the fourth generation, right? Exodus 20, Exodus 34, to the third and to the fourth generation, what happens? Jacob has 12 sons, one of which gets sold into slavery. And look at what the brothers say to the father. Last one, and then we'll move on from this, I promise. It says this in Genesis 37. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Not we took it off of him and sold him into slavery. We found this and it was bloody. Identify if this is Joseph's. He identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son. Morning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So you see iniquity and blessing. We got good things from our family and we also have picked up on some not so great things from our family of origin. And the iniquity gets passed down. You see this pattern of lying Abraham lied about his wife. Isaac, Jacob lied. Jacob's name was deceiver, right? Isaac lied, his, lied about his wife, Rebecca, but then Jacob lied to everybody, basically. His name was deceiver. And you see him lying all, all over Genesis. 10 of Jacob's children lie and they do this fake funeral for their brother and they keep up this lie for like 10 years until Joseph himself outs himself and says, hey, they've been lying to you the whole time. Well, you see this pattern of lying You see favoritism in the scriptures getting passed down. Abraham favored Ishmael, Isaac favored Esau, Jacob favored Joseph, and then after Joseph died, he favored Benjamin. You see brothers get cut off from one another. Isaac and Ishmael are cut off. Jacob fled from Esau and they were cut off and fought against each other for years. Joseph was cut off from his brothers. Like you see these generational iniquities, these bents towards these behaviors get passed down. Same is true with David, and we won't read about them, but you see David, he had a son Solomon. Solomon had a son Rehoboam. And each of them, you can't make this up, each of them was king of Israel for exactly 40 years. Like, perfect mirror image of the other one. And you see these generational things. You see sexual sin get passed down, right? David commits adultery and then commits murder. David had many wives. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Rehoboam has 18 wives and 60 concubines. David lies about his adultery. Solomon mixes up the worship with the God of Israel with other gods. Rehoboam rejects wise counsel and follows this other counsel. Like you see unresolved conflict get passed through. You see not only David was a man after God's own heart and Solomon did incredible things and so did Rehoboam, but you see iniquity get passed down to the generations, to the third and to the fourth. And that word, that phrase, to the third and the fourth is a Hebrew idiom, just meaning as many as it takes. (laughs) Like it just keeps going down until something is done about it. We see that. And then last example that we'll show you is you see this in the New Testament with Herod. Uh, There were four Herods in the New Testament time period. You have Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa the First, Herod Agrippa the Second, and each of the Herods, all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the book of Acts, each of them hear the good news about Jesus and they reject it. And instead of taking refuge in the Messiah and letting him forgive their sin and their iniquity, they resort to violence. And they try to kill Jesus himself 
or the disciples, the apostles, the followers of Jesus. But you see this generational iniquity get passed down. So what do we do about it? What do we do about these things? Because they're real and they're heavy and we all are a part of a family growing up. We all have baggage from our family of origin. Prayerfully, we have incredible blessings that have been given to us from our parents, but our families are broken. And students, your parents' families were broken and they were eight years old one day and they had to make life work for themselves and they resorted to different behaviors and things as well. So what do we do about these things? And there's good news for us this morning because the gospel changes everything. The gospel affects all of those things. Let me show you. This is Isaiah 53. It says this, listen for those terms. Sin, transgression, iniquity. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way, right? We've crossed the boundaries, but what happened? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Skip down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, making inter intercession for the transgressors. In the gospel, we see that Jesus not only paid for our individual sins, he not only bore our individual sins, he bore our sins of commission, of omission, he bore our transgressions and he bore the iniquities of our family. In the gospel, you are not a victim to and you are not powerless over these bents and these behaviors that have been passed down to you through your family tree. And in fact, in the gospel, your family tree might describe you, but the only tree that defines you is the tree that your savior died on. And in the gospel now, we have the transforming power of God's grace to overcome these generational iniquities and these bents towards these specific behaviors that have been passed down to us. Not just our sins, not just our transgressions, not just commission, not just omission, but the iniquities of our families have been borne by our Savior on the cross. We've been set free from those. They are powerless over us because of the transforming power of God's grace you can overcome. But let me say this. You're not bound by them, you're not guilty for them, but they do not just disappear, right? Those bents are still going to be there, but you don't have to give in to them anymore because of the gospel. Does that make sense? They still visit the children to the third and the fourth generation, but because of the gospel, you don't have to give in to those anymore. By God's grace, you can be aware of them, you can see them, you can take the good and you can leave the bad and you can change, especially if you grew up in just a lineage of sin, of hopelessness, you can change the game for the generations after you because of the gospel and because of the cross. You don't have to give in to those. You're not a victim of those. You can see them, you can be aware of them, you can acknowledge them and by God's grace, you can change the narrative for your family. You can make healthy disciples. Why? Because the cross and God's grace, where sin abounds, like in studying this, I have never been more aware of just how sinful I am and how sinful my family is. But Romans 5, where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds all the more. Our sin is way worse than we could have ever thought. But God's grace is deeper and wider and more vast than we could ever imagine. Let me take you back to where we started this morning. Because the same grace 
that brought us into the family of God is the same grace and the same gospel that can break us from the change of our biological families. You don't have to give in to those. Those don't have to define you. They don't have to be your story. Jesus came to redeem the past, not just the present, not just the future, but the sins and the iniquities and the transgressions of our families. Look at how God describes himself in Exodus 34 one more time. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Here it is, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who our God is. He forgives them all. But will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How in the world are both of those true? How can God forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but at the same time, by no means let the guilty go unpunished? How does he do that? At the cross. It's where God takes on our guilt and our shame and our iniquity and our transgression, and he paid for it himself so that he could forgive our iniquity and our transgression and our sin. That's how he does it. Exodus 20, look at the scales here. Exodus 20 says this, you shall have no other gods before me, not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here it is again, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. Look at this, to the third and to the fourth generation, but showing my steadfast love to thousands, to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. Yes, our iniquities go to the third and to the fourth generation, but God's love and his grace and the gospel goes to thousands of generations. And you have the opportunity for all those things that you never got from your mother or your father. You have those in a heavenly father and a perfectly heavenly, perfect heavenly father. You don't have to manufacture those in your relationships. You don't have to try to get those from your children. You don't have to try to get those from your parents. If they couldn't give it to you then, they probably can't provide it for you now and they can't fully and finally provide it for you, the only way that your heart can truly find love or the peace that you needed, the satisfaction, the significance, the only place that are gonna find those is in the gospel. And the more we turn to the cross to get those things instead of our earthly relationships and circumstances and behaviors and habits, the healthier we'll be for the generations after us. The more healthy of a disciple you'll be, and you'll be able to raise healthier disciples. The more you see these things, the more you're aware of those things, and the more you get those needs that you've always needed in the cross. Not from your parents, not from your children, not from your job. Otherwise, we'll keep trying to get those things and we'll keep passing down these things, but you don't have to do that in the gospel. Human sin can impact four generations. But divine grace can impact thousands of generations. Last verse, and then we'll talk about, okay, what do we do with all this? Uh, I feel like I've just opened a door and I don't wanna just say, see ya, and like let you guys try to figure it out. Um, Psalms 27 says this, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Regardless of what your relationship with your parents or grandparents is horizontally, you've been adopted, You've been chosen, you've been redeemed by your heavenly father. Which means you can take the steps to try to get reconciliation horizontally because you don't need them to provide anything for you because you already have it in the gospel. Like we said last week, if your goal was to raise smart kids, you might be out of time or you might just have a little bit of time left. If your goal was to raise good athletes, then you're running out of time or you might be already out of time if they graduated, but if your goal is to raise disciples and you still have breath in your lungs and the courage to have a conversation, then it is not too late. It doesn't matter if they're in your home or out of your home. You can take some steps to sh share gospel, to share the love and the grace and the peace of God in your children. You can disciple them as adults if you have to. It's not too late if your goal is to make disciples. Not too late. This is why over and over again, Jesus reminds us to love him 
more than we love our earthly families and our relationships. We see this all throughout the gospels. And he calls us to take our refuge in him, not in an earthly relationship. But like I said, the temptation doesn't just disappear. The bent is still there, but you don't have to give into it. So what do we do, all right? I know I've just tried to throw out lots of options. I'm not trying to play the Holy Spirit. I'm just trying to throw out lots of scenarios and all these kind of things. And maybe some of them landed. Some of you, the Holy Spirit took you to a different place about something that I didn't mention. And you're trying to work through that and think about that and process that. What do we do? I wanna encourage you. Um, one, we have resources online. Um, you can go, and I don't just wanna throw a website at you. There's more than this, but you can go to highpointonline.com care. Uh, we have licensed counselors on staff if you wanna talk to one of them. Uh, we have a list of recommended therapists in town if you wanna talk. And hear me, I'm the biggest believer in therapy ever. I think God created it and uses it, all right? We throw a lot of shade at it. We say things like, yeah, I'm messed up, but I'm not like need therapy messed up. And it's like, no, we're all that messed up, right? We'll get people to coach us on our golf swings and on our businesses, but for some reason to ask someone to coach us on our emotions just seems a little taboo. But let me clear the air, go for it, save my life. Gave me my life back in a lot of ways. So I would encourage you, pursue it. Some of you, you might need prayer. You can fill out one of the response cards. If you want to receive this gospel that we talked about this morning, do not leave here without talking to somebody. I would be glad to talk with you. Elders here, Tyler's here. We got folks here that would love to talk to you if you wanna receive the gospel. And then lastly, I wanna encourage you. Like I said, the goal's not to blame shift. The goal's not to be a victim because your parents were born into broken families, same way you were. Um, one of the most powerful and freeing things I did, uh, some people call it a genogram. Um, if you're in DNA, we're gonna talk about this today actually. Um, we called it a family map when I did it. And one of the things that I did, and I was instructed to do, was to just draw out my family tree three or four generations up. So I had to draw out my name, my siblings' names, my parents, their parents, and I didn't know much beyond that. I knew a few names, but, um, and then I went through and traced the iniquity and just wrote down behavioral patterns, things that weren't great. But then I also went through and wrote down the circumstances that they had to experience. Circumstances, the environments that my mom and my dad grew up in. Things that I've just heard about in passing with my parents. Things that their parents had to grow up in. And you know what it did? It gave me an empathy for my parents that I had never had before. It gave me a compassion and an empathy for my grandparents that I had never had before. And you realize, teenagers in the room, that your parents were eight years old one day and they were trying to make life work just like you are. And we tried to manufacture and do things to survive and get things that we were missing inside from the world and from our relationships. And it was so freeing for me. And it freed me up to actually be able to have honest conversations knowing um, that I'm not a victim, that I'm not bound by what has happened to me or the family environment that I grew up in, that through the gospel, I've been set free from that. And by God's grace, I don't have to give in to that. The Holy Spirit will empower me to start a new legacy and pass on new blessings for my family, kids, grandkids. That the same way the curses and the iniquities get passed is the same way the blessings get passed. So the goal this morning is to be grateful for the blessings that you've been given through your family of origin and to be aware of the iniquities. Why? So that you can deal with them. Not so you can pass blame, not so you can grow bitter, but that you can change the narrative for the families after you. You can be the healthiest version of yourself for your kids.